This week on Personally Speaking, the great actor Jose Lana is our guest. Stay with us. Hello and welcome to Personally Speaking. I'm your host, Monsignor Gemosanti, and actor and singer Jose Lana joins me now. Jose is currently starring as Ferdinand Marcos in the Broadway musical Here Lies Love. He most recently starred as the King of Siam in Lincoln Center Theater's Tony Award-winning revival of The King and I on Broadway, the United States National Tour, and the UK Tour. Jose's previous Broadway credits include the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, Wonderland, and Flower Drum Song. Appearing on numerous cast albums, Jose, a native of the Philippines, is also a best-selling recording artist on the Viva Philippines label. He's here with us today to talk about his life, his career, his family, playing Marcos, and the faith and values that mean the most to him. Joining me now, I'm so pleased to welcome to Personally Speaking, Jose Liana. Before we get to our interview with Jose, let's listen to him singing from Here Lies Love. We have waited so long now a change will come soon And if you put me in charge Hey, well that's what I'll do Help me out fellas I am a child of the Philippines From Cagayan to Lake And this, this is our land First things first, tell me I want to first of all welcome you to the program Tell me a little bit about why is this Here Lies Love so incredibly popular? What do you think it does or says that makes people so into this musical that it's been around forever and now it's so popular? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, people are attracted to a party. It looks like a party where, you know, right? the, the, the images were showing. I think the curiosity from uh, what people are hearing, how we've turned a Broadway theater into a, a, a dance floor and disco, I think. Uh, but I think um, hopefully why people are, are, are spreading the word about us is that um, it's a combination of, of a big party, but also giving a little bit of uh, important history lessons um, about yeah. what could happen to politics and, uh, and world leaders if we don't keep watch over them. So. You know, recently at church, I was talking about 9-11 and I was uh, troubled by the fact there were some young people who really didn't know what I was talking about. Oh, wow. That, you know, so that's 2001. But I'm thinking so a revolution that took place in the last century is probably easily forgotten. So for the folks who don't know, you are playing Ferdinand Marcos. Can you tell us who he is? Well, Ferdinand Marcos was a former president and dictator of the Philippines. Um, he was elected president in 1965. And um, in the middle of his second term, um, he started uh, trying to hold on to power. Um, and so he actually declared martial law in 1972. Mm -hmm. um, and he stayed in power um, until the People Power Revolution uh, took back power and ejected him and Imelda Marcos from from the palace in 1986. So he was in power for about 21 years. Jose, Jose, did that uh, that experience of Marcos's dictatorship? Mm -hmm. uh, what role did that play in your family's decision to leave the Philippines and come to the United States? Enormous. Enorm okay. I mean, the, it was the main reason. I think, you know, my, I was born in 76, uh, okay. four years after martial law was declared. My sister was born in 72. 
my parents were uh, the young activists in the 70s who were the ones that we actually depict in our show, uh, the young student activists who were uh, who were rallying against, obviously, martial law and, and uh, trying to regain freedom back for the Filipino people. Um, and there came a point in time where my mom and dad had two young children um, and they realized that um, any opportunity to, to immigrate to the States uh, was was high on their list. And I think there was a massive exodus of the Philippines around that time because martial law was such a dangerous and terrible time for the Philippines. Um, so um, it's the reason why I'm in this country. It's the reason why I'm an American citizen. Um, right. The same for many Filipino Americans who came uh, who immigrated not just to the States, but to Australia, to the UK, to Canada. Um, you can trace a lot of um, Filipino immigration to the, the 70s um, and early 80s uh, while martial law was happening in the Philippines. I could ask this about the people from the Philippines, but actually it's a universal question. Uh, some people still think the world of Marcos because they like mm. the image of the strong man. There are certainly mm -hmm. people who put uh, Mr. Putin on a, on a pedestal in the same way we have our own uh, strong men here in America. Do you have any mm -hmm. idea about what it is like when you guys, not you, but the people in the Philippines elected to Duarte, he just seemed like like not a good strong man, and yet he was very popular, even among the Filipino community in New York. A lot of them said, no, he's going to clean up the uh, the crime and he's going to make us mm -hmm. strong again. What is it in our human nature that makes us be attracted to people who clearly don't have democracy in their hearts? Right. <laughs> you, you know, I think in both instances, I think um, in particular, there, there was a level of misinformation happening. And I think, um, you know, back before social media existed, uh, one of the first things Marcos did was he kind of took control of journalism. He, mm -hmm. he basically imprisoned a lot of reporters and journalists, and he controlled the narrative of what his country, of what his administration and, and who the people he was in charge of were doing. So um, there was also a class system where um, you, obviously the wealthy elite they had more of an idea of what was going on in the main capital, but there were a lot of people in the rural parts of the Philippines in the 60s, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, who, um, you know, a lot of them didn't have television. A lot of them only had the radio, and a lot of them only had the news that was being brought to them through the newspapers. And so they were being spoon-fed misinformation about what was actually going on. Travel 50, 60 years in the future, the same thing is happening with social media. Yeah. Social media right now in the Philippines, and actually Maria Ressa describes it perfectly in her, in her book, uh, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, about how Facebook has completely overtaken the news um, cycle in, in the Philippines. Mm. Because Facebook is free, because yeah. anyone who has a Facebook account can get in their, will get their information primarily from Facebook sources. They don't necessarily check the source that their news that they're clicking on the Facebook page. So <clears throat> Chamber, uh, Cambridge Analytica did a huge study on, on, on the engagement of Filipinos. And then you couple that with the fact that martial law has not been taught in public schools in the Philippines for the past 30 years. It's been kind of glossed over. Then you, then you have two or three generations of young people who are now voting age who have not been educated about what martial law was and all those civil rights abuses that happened. And so you have Marcos's son come up and say, hey, I'm running for president. Remember martial law? It was a golden time of the Philippines. Right, right. And, and I'm not going to grant any legitimate journalist interviews um, until I'm elected. And it, it, you, you really start adding up that the fact that misinformation is really helping getting people to the, to the decision of, well, let's give Marcos another try since, you know, his father looked, I mean, some people were telling him that the Marcoses were the golden age of the Philippines based on all these glamorous photos. 
Um, and so in our show, we tell the whole story of, yes, there was glamour. That's the party we're throwing. And it was the party that the Marcuses threw in the Philippines for 20 years. But the most important part of our story is that last third of the story where you see the torture, you see the, the dissolving of democracy, and then you see the people power revolution taking that power back. And, and, it's, and hopefully our show is telling people that while democracies crumble, you still have the power to take it back if, if you as a people want it back. There's something that happened in the People Power Revolution back then that just mm -hmm. never could happen in America. Um, there's a priest I live with, Father Andy, who's from the Philippines, and he talks about it because he participated in it. But the church, the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. uh, was thoroughly behind the revolution, and Cardinal Sin stood up to Marcos. But that kind mm -hmm. of thing just couldn't happen in our country where the church would ever have that kind of political influence. What is it about the Catholic Church in the Philippines that gave them the ability to motivate people to get out on the street, and, and end this dictatorship? You know, it was such a huge part of the revolution. It was, it, it was you, you can't understate the, the power that the Catholic Church has in the Philippines. Obviously, it, it's, it's part of the, 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 the Spanish culture that came to the Philippines when we were colonized in, in, the, in the 1500s. And um, I mean, to be Filipino means to be raised Catholic, obviously, because yeah. it, it's, it's such the, the, you know, and so when, when um, the People Power Revolution started happening, the, the image of the nuns coming out mm -hmm. and joining the protest and, and then the priests coming out to join yeah. them. Um, it was, it became such an iconic figure uh, of image um, that it brought more people out to the street, you know, and, mm -hmm. and said, you know, it, and it was also a really, I truly, truly believe that it was one of the main reasons why it was a completely peaceful protest because nobody in their right minds would ever raise yeah. a gun yeah. to a nun or a priest, especially knowing that there were cameras everywhere and taking photographs of the whole thing, yeah. you know? So, I mean, I think, um, it, it was a it was a big tipping point, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. You know, usually because churches, the church tends to stay out of politics when they can and when and as, as they should when when things are are not going well. And but it, at this point, it, it was such a tipping point. And I think when when the people who had if you know the Marcos the government the dictatorship was really unpopular already at that point. But once the Catholic Church came in and joined the protest and said, "This is enough. This is enough." And and obviously. They had been saying it for for years beforehand when it was widespread and understood that there were a lot of people being being taken and tortured and mm -hmm. killed, and which obviously goes directly against yeah. the teachings of the, of the of the Catholic Church. So, um, you know, I think um, you can't understate how important it was. Like actually, in my dressing room right now, there's a there's a really popular and very famous image of three nuns kneeling. Uh, uh, Filipino nuns kneeling um, in front of a tank, um, in front of soldiers with guns. Amazing. And it was such a, a strong image that I believe Time Magazine put it in in in, uh, in their paper. And um, yeah, I mean, I think you can't you can't overstate how important the Catholic Church was in in the forming of the People Power Revolution. Jose Leona, great actor, is our guest and person speaking. Jose, uh, I had the privilege years ago of interviewing Cory Aquino, and what struck me about President Aquino was. Uh, how forgiving of nature she was. Mm. Uh, they had killed her husband, for goodness sake, and yet mm. talked about re reconciliation and forgiveness at the heart of our faith and hopefully our government. I mm -hmm. is, she, is she typical of a Philippine mentality of forgive and forget, or, or, or do people hold on to the anger? You know, um, I would have to say she's, uh, she's much more in keeping with kind of the general feeling of the Philippines and, and uh, Filipinos. But I, I, I say that with reserve in that it's a bit of a warning. Um, I think uh, I, I've constantly started um, 
reminding people that we have been colonized so many times by other countries that Filipinos, we tend to be the masters of assimilation. We tend Mm. to be the people who, okay, I guess we've been taken over by the Spanish. We weren't really a country before the Spanish came. We were 7,000 different islands and tribes trading with each other with different languages. But now they've they've come and called us Filipinos after King Philip of Spain. Mm-hmm. And we they've given us a religion that we, we didn't practice before they got here. Right. Um, and they've named us these Spanish names. You know, so I mean, like all these things happened that the Filipino people, we, we've learned to kind of assimilate and, 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 and move on and move forward, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that to a fault. I really do, because I think once once the, the nature of, of a people is about overcoming the, 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 you know, the, the bad situation to try to make the best of it, um, there, there comes this feeling, this kind of colonial mentality of uh, make do with what you got and make do with what you're given. And I think um, what was happening in the 60s and the, in the 50s and 60s was that Filipinos were finally, uh, were finally claiming who they were and and trying to overcome this colonial mentality of first the Spanish were in charge and the Japanese threatened us and then America came in and said you're free from the Spanish but you're but we're still kind of in charge here yeah, right you know and I think that was that was so that when you had these politicians like Marcos come in with this nationalistic pride and say we are Filipinos we mm-hmm. will stand up to America that's why he was elected with such popularity. It was a landslide victory. Yeah. Um, now, if only he had fulfilled his promise to be honest and true to the Filipino people, as opposed to becoming corrupt by his power, which is exactly what happened. You know, and I think um, the the potential that Marcos had was so huge to bring the Philippines into a new era. And it is absolutely heartbreaking that he decided to go the mm-hmm. other direction and 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 pillage. The, the, the country and, and, and steal and, and kill. And so, um, yes, Corazon Aquino, I think, has the, the reputation for being, well, let's forgive. And being that president after Marcos was kicked out, yeah. there was a need for the country to heal, which mm-hmm. is what we needed from her and what we needed for the country. Um, unfortunately, I believe it allowed for the corruption that still existed in the country to, to keep spiraling into more corruption that, that still exists today. Okay, let's talk now a bit about you as a person. Uh, There are so many wonderful American Filipinos, and they do great stuff. Every doctor I go to, every nurse I run into, (laughs) you know, they're great, great people. But I mention that because you decide somewhere along the journey of life to go into the arts. Now, I I just Mm. wonder with your own parents, Mm. nobody minds their child being uh, into the arts as an avocation, but a vocation, a life Mm -hmm. choice, very indefinite. Sometimes work, sometimes you don't work. So how did your family respond to you embracing a life in the arts? Um, with full support, but uh, okay. that it, it comes, I have to, it, it comes with two different, two different things. Sure. Um, my mom and dad, who are incredible parents and very progressive, and they came here to this country looking for uh, better opportunities for themselves and for their, for their two children. Um, it, it goes without saying that my mom and dad would have supported anything that I did. Okay. Uh, that said, that said, I, I, I benefit greatly from being the younger sibling. Um, <laughs> uh, I have an older sister who, Patricia, who is my hero and my idol, and she she benefited. She, oh, I would say she <laughs> um, had the unfortunate duty of being the older sibling, and uh, my sister was a rock star in school. She got straight A's. She got a full scholarship to undergrad at college, um, engineering scholarship at Cooper Union, and then she got a full scholarship to grad school at <laughs> MIT. 
So, uh, and now she's an engineer for the US government. Um, so my sister is a rock star, you know, and I think because she made my, she did everything you were supposed to do <laughs> as, as a young immigrant child. Um, it allowed my parents to go, okay, Jose wants to sing and dance for a living. <laughs> Patricia has, Patricia has fulfilled our, our, you know, our immigrant <laughs> dreams for having an engineer in the family. Let Jose, and I truly believe that if I, had we been born in different order, um, I might be an engineer and my sister would be dancing oh. on Broadway. I really do. <laughs> um, but I, I owe everything to supportive parents and also an older sister who um, to this day is my idol and, and, and hero. Okay. Now, Jose, we had on oh, a few years back, obviously, before she went to God, the great novelist Anne Rice. And, uh, mm. and Anne had come back to the church and she'd been an atheist for a while and then she became a practicing Catholic. But she also had a son who was uh, freely, openly gay. And mm -hmm. I asked her during the interview, I said, look, how do you square the fact that, you know, where the church is on, on the issue of gay and, uh, and you have the son who you love, but you also say you love the church? And she said, well, you just said it all, Monsignor. She said, I love my church and I love my son. And, and it's quite mm -hmm. comfortable being both. Um, now in this age of Pope Francis, where he goes to Chile and meets with gay men and says, uh, God doesn't care if you're gay. Uh, the Pope doesn't care if you're gay. All that we care about is that you live a good life, a meaningful life. Um, that's a huge, huge, huge yes. step in the right direction. But mm -hmm. you grew up in a time when the church was not always that open-minded. So sure. how do you, as a Catholic Christian, how do you put it all together? You know, um, I, I believe I, I, I constantly, rather than trying to ask the big questions, um, in terms of the you know the big questions right. uh, as a gay man my I, I i think of when i think of the catholic church i think of my grandmother mm -hmm. um i think of my parents um and i think of i think of as the relationship i have with them you know and, and i know my grandmother at my there was never any doubt that when i came out of the closet i was i was very young i was i was 17 when i came out that was 30 years ago um i i was there was never any doubt that my family would be supportive but i just knew that they would they would it would be something we'd have to talk about, you know, and, yeah. and it was, and, and it was the reason why I, I don't consider myself a practicing Catholic anymore. When, when, after I left, um, when I, when I came out of the closet, uh, just cause at the time in 1994, I, it wasn't where I wanted to, it wasn't where I felt comfortable. Yeah. Um, but only in my older age have I realized just that I am a spiritual person and that I, I, I want, I yearn for something to, 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 to feel there and to understand there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I see the peace that my, my Christian friends have, uh, when they do talk about their faith and they do talk about their connection with God, um, so I, I, I applaud uh, that any any notion to bring people together and, and to talk about faith and to talk about what it means to us to be spiritual. Um, and uh, again, when I, I my grandmother's turning a hundred next year, and um, she's um, in the Philippines, and unfortunately, obviously, she's not traveling anymore. So we're not, we're going to try to go to make her hundredth birthday next summer um, to the Philippines. And, um, I, and I just know that she prays for me every day. And there's something about that that is really special to me. And it's, yeah. I feel like it's a bit of one of my superpowers that I can, that I know <laughs> that my grandmother is still praying for me. Um, and, and she yeah. knows, and I know that she's praying for me that I'm happy and that I'm healthy. Um, and that to me is just special. And I, and, I, and I think about that every day. When, when you go back, will that have been the first visit in a while to the Philippines? Uh, since 2008. Yeah, unfortunately, oh, okay. you know, to get there, you have to take at least two weeks time. And my husband and I, particularly my husband, it's hard for him to take two weeks time uh, to go it, to go to the Asia for in, for just one week is is a very difficult thing. You, you basically spend two days flying there and two days flying back. So 
Um, but 2008, we went to a, a wedding in the Philippines. My cousin got married and that was a really special time. So it's been a while. Actually, unfortunately, we had a huge family trip with my sister and the kids and my mom and my stepdad were, were going to the Philippines, a planned trip in March of 2020 that we canceled we know what happened right <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so um it was heartbreaking we had all the trips we had all the tickets purchased and planned uh, but obviously we had to cancel the trip um and so this is the next reason for the the reason for the trip will be next summer probably now, now jose let me ask you when you are going back to the philippines to see grandma mm -hmm. for her 100th birthday and <laughs> this time you're going back where the president of the country is the son <laughs> of the dictator and now you who play the dictator are going to the philippines are you going to yeah. be warmly welcome there um i don't know um let's just say i will not be i will not be coming in with a fanfare let's just say that i will yeah, not yeah, be yeah. going in in any official capacity with the show i will try to be incognito saying I'm, I'm there on my own personal um there just to visit my family um and uh yeah you know people keep asking will you do here lies love in the philippines and i said you know us doing the show here has this not just the safety but just but the also uh the privilege of being told from a filipino american perspective what we know as our history what happened back in our country of birth um but to tell the story there obviously is is a very different story there are a lot of people who uh don't want us to talk about martial law people, there are people who and i don't just mean the people who are marco supporters but um i have to have a lot of empathy for the people who um, who see martial law as a really traumatic time of their lives and of, of the country's life. And, and it's, 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 it's hard for anybody to talk about trauma, you know, mm -hmm. whether, um, and I think the important thing is to talk about it because we don't want the mistakes that were made back then to happen again. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the most important part of telling the story, but I think there's a beautiful safety in telling the story from a, a bit of a, of a, a distance from, within the philippines itself jose is our guest and uh, jose leama am i saying it right Le I, I just Le say lana jose lana, lana. oh lana yeah um, it's easier like that's a colonial mention <laughs> that's the col colonized mind of they got to you we had recently on paulo montalban and he's playing mm -hmm. florence ziegfeld in funny girl and i asked him the question i want to ask you uh, we've come a long way since miss saigon and an englishman playing mm -hmm. an asian but and there are many more roles thank god for asians now but uh is there a danger in saying only people who are what they are can play the role? Mm. Like, like, could you play a role right now that would normally be played by someone of another culture or background or color? Um, you know, I, I think to make a blanket statement for all for all art right now would be right. is a dangerous thing. And I yes. think um, it's like like all art, it's subjective. And and number two, it's it, I should I think that decision should be made piece by piece and okay. show by show. You know, I think. Um, you know, in, in my career, like, I, first of all, I love Paolo. Paolo and I have been friends since our first Broadway show together in 1996. Not only is he incredibly talented, a strapping, strapping, handsome guy. He's one of the kindest people I've ever known. He really ever is. Known. Yeah. He's <laughs> just, his heart is about this big and, and yeah. he wears it on his sleeve and he's just the kindest, kindest guy on the planet. Um, but, you know, Paolo and I did, did a show on Broadway in 1996 when it was a, during that time, I remember auditioning for things and being told straight to my face, uh, we're not seeing Asian people for this, for this show, you know, and, and, oh. and they, and they were completely in their rights to say it that way, you know, and it was a different time. I promise I'm going to wrap soon, but let me ask you this. Yeah, um, sure. when, 
when I listen to someone like you, and you probably know this about yourself, you are, uh, Jose, very upbeat, very positive. Um, when you look at the world, though, America and the rest of the world, we are so divided. It almost seems like evenly divided one against another. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you a person of hope? And, and do you have hope for the world and our country in the future? And where does the hope come from? Absolutely, I have hope. I, I you know, my hope is, you know, we, we, we live in this, these big bubbles, you know, and we, we, we look at the world sometimes from only the perspective of our bubbles. And I think I, it's a lesson I learned from social media. You know, I'm, I'm 47 years old, so social media came a little late to me. Um, I, I, got in, I got too engrossed in it and I got very angry and I'm very mm. political, so I responded really quickly. Um, but these past five or 10 years, I've learned to step back a little bit okay. and, and be more of a watcher and don't let myself engage without thinking first and, and letting a day pass or even even an hour pass what, to let the to let the anger subside or let the, the reactionary emotion subside and go, OK, do I still want to respond? Do I still will my response mean anything in a positive way or am I just adding to the negative discourse? Um, am I just, you know, this person is clearly putting this out there to create negative discourse. Do I want to mm. add to that? So I think if, if we all just step back a little bit and, and took a breath, um, because we are surrounded constantly on social media with people who don't agree with us and people right. who have quintessentially opposite worldviews uh, that we do, um, and people who are trying to take our rights away, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rather than going in with an angry heart, I always try to step back and go, okay, what has this person lived through? What is their experience to get to this point? And where can we find common ground to understand that we're all just here trying to do the same thing? We're all just trying to live peaceful lives and hopefully coexist with each other. And if there still isn't a connection, then that's okay. It's not meant for me to connect. I walk away and maybe someone down the road will find a connection to that person. But I've learned to walk away and I've learned to really only try with people who I feel like are going to try back um, and and make that connection. So you have to, you have to, or else to just go into a downward spiral every time someone upsets you. Um, But I do hope that I I feel like sincere hope that if, if more people, entered things with that kind of empathy, mm-hmm. um, then the world would be a better place. Many years ago, I had interviewed the film director, Frank Capra, who said, illness is not as great a problem as discouragement. I just mm-hmm. wondered when you got the election results that there was yet another Marcos as president, did you respond with hope or with discouragement? Uh, I, I, I responded with worry that my parents were gonna get very upset by it. Uh, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, um, you know they, were the, they were the young, kids they were the young college students that that saw it all happen and you know they're they're in their 70s now and they're both retired and Mm. i just feel like they're exhausted from it all (laughs) i I think you know there's there comes a point in your life that you just kind of want to relax and not think about politics and you know um but i think about them in that sense and i i think okay let me take it let let me let me let me take on the worry and understand what we need to do to make sure that things don't happen the way that they did right. in 1972. Jose, thanks so. so much for being a guest on our program. And you know, I, I listened to you talk glowingly about your sister. Obviously your parents are so proud of her, but I suspect they might be mildly proud of you too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope so. And I'm sure, I think they, I'm sure they are. Thank you so much for having me on. As we end today's program, I thank you for being with us. If you need to reach me, you can get me at personallyspeakingpodcast at gmail.com. 
If you want to not just listen to this program, you can also see it on YouTube by going to Personally Speaking with Monsignor Eugene Losanti. I'm privileged to serve as host and executive producer of Personally Speaking. Our producer is Lisa Jandovitz. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be with you again next time on Personally Speaking.